0: From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. So, if it turns out that the uh, the brain as a quantum object with enough recursion built into the object is sufficient to give rise to what we, we think of as awareness, I'm perfectly comfortable with
1: that. You know that moment in high school physics class when the teacher holds up a piece of chalk and asks you what will happen if he lets go? It's that classic demonstration of the scientific method. Hypothesis, observation, and experiment. The teacher drops the chalk, and it falls to the floor, and he explains Newton's law of gravity. That seemed straightforward to me, but a simple question stayed in my mind. What exactly is gravity? What is it that's pulling the chalk to the floor? I let these questions go until taking a physics course here um, in my freshman year at Stanford. We were talking about the basic equations of Newton, and suddenly the question came back to me. What is gravity? I asked the professor, and he said, well, there are a number of theories about this, but to be honest, nobody really knows. And I said, what? And he said, one theory is that there are these little particles called gravitons that go between object and object. And if they exist, they must not have mass, because gravitational force has an unlimited range. Graviton? How come I'd never heard that word before? And how could a particle exist if it doesn't have mass? So I began to wonder. If physics hasn't explained such a basic thing as gravity, it seems like there are some pretty basic questions that science hasn't explained. There are other basic phenomena like this, on both the really small and the really large scale. Take consciousness, for example. Our mechanical understanding of the brain is improving every day, but we're still on the hunt for that thing that makes a system of neurons animate and self-aware. In other words, for all that we know, we don't even know what we are. And maybe, like so many things, science just needs more time. And given our history of progress, we can expect some better explanations in the future. Or, maybe our science has taken a wrong turn somewhere whether it's a matter of methodology or the basic framework itself, maybe we have so many unanswered questions because we're not asking the right questions. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project, and I'm Bonnie Swift and today we have a special one-hour show about the edges of science, or research that is taking place outside the contemporary parameters of science. I've come to think of this genre of research as parascience. Our focus will be primarily on research about consciousness, research that falls a little bit outside of what is normally considered scientific domain, but which is nevertheless done according to scientific method. After that first physics class at Stanford, I wondered, If our science had taken a wrong turn somewhere, when had this happened? And I spent the rest of my four years here learning about the history and philosophy of science. Both scientists and historians have helped me understand how our cultural climate sways our perception of what is and what is not allowed within the gates of the academic garden. In my time exploring the history of science, I discovered that the relationship between science and mysticism goes far back into history. Most of our scientific forefathers—Kepler, Newton, Galileo, especially Newton—were fascinated by the occult, and I discovered that in Newton's time, and up until very recently actually, the distinctions between natural and supernatural, or between science and pseudoscience, were still being formulated. In Newton's time, there was still a willingness to entertain all the various possible explanations for things. Scientists with this outlook have largely disappeared. But there are a few who remain. Some physicists and philosophers today are calling for a return to a more holistic science, one with an expanded, more open-ended framework. Even into the early part of the 20th century, there were still active debates in science about psychic phenomena and the nature of things, and this is a conversation that professors now tend to steer clear of. Metaphysics has been relegated to the seminary. When I started this project, I began to look around for people who would know about the history of parapsychological research. I thought that I might have to go as far as London to find something interesting, but it turns out I didn't even have to leave campus. In the early 1900s, Stanford had a special fellowship designated for what they called psychical, or spiritualist, research. And I thought this might be a good place to start. Money for psychical research was donated to Stanford in 1911 by Leland Stanford's younger brother, Thomas Welton. He had a personal interest in spiritualism, and sent the university large sums of money, as well as his collection of ceremonious objects. These objects are now housed in the special collections of our library. University historian, and archivist Maggie Kimball showed me these mysterious objects one day last week.
2: So among the various apports that are in the collection there are things like an ink an ink block and there are also numerous boxes of seeds and rocks. Um, these are objects that are purported to have appeared during seances or were introduced at a seance and then somehow were altered during the course of the seance period. The ink block is basically what looks like a black block of stone with an indentation at one end on the top for the ink. would have been used for writing purposes. It's in a box with other objects, which may well be items, there's a wooden piece with markings on one side, a leather piece at the end, almost like a hanging. And on the back is a date, December 7th, 06. So this would have been an object that would have likely appeared during a seance on that date. Actually, many of the seances that Thomas Welton Stanford participated in were actually held in his home in Melbourne, Australia. He was interested in working with several different mediums to communicate with those in the world beyond. It's questionable how much he believed um, all of what some of the mediums produced or Uh, indicated occurred during those seances, but he continued to sort of pursue the interest in spiritualism, as did many others in Australia and elsewhere at the time.
1: Thomas Wilton, as I mentioned before, was the younger brother of Leland Stanford. And both boys grew up in a small town in New York and came out west to make their fortunes. And while Leland decided to stay in California, Thomas Welton decided to move to Australia, where he established a monopoly on the sale of Singer sewing machines. He was described as a somewhat Uncle Sam-looking man, tall and slender with swarthy skin and dark hair. He always wore a long-tailed coat and was especially proud of his long beard, which he bundled into a bag while he worked in the garden.
2: Physically, the photographs of him with a long beard and sort of long hair make him look almost Rasputin-like. Um, and I think he was—he uh, he was considered a, a character to some extent, but he clearly cared deeply about about the university. And there's, as I as I said, I think there's some speculation as to how real he really thought these mediums were, and and. Um, But I think there was also a real need for people to be able to participate in things like that at the time.
1: When it came to his interest in spiritualism, Thomas Welton was not alone in the Stanford family. Jane Stanford, Leland's wife, was also interested in the possibility of communicating with the dead. And both Thomas Welton and Jane were drawn to this idea especially after the death of someone dear to them.
2: Many people basically sort of take his interest in spiritualism as Jane Stanford's interest back to the death of a loved one. Thomas Welton Stanford traveled to Australia with a brother, DeWitt Stanford, who died shortly after they arrived in Australia. But Thomas Welton Stanford married a young woman who died in the first year of their marriage? Some say with child, or, um, but that's not been necessarily proven. But it was his interest in communicating with his wife um, that prompted this interest. Jane Stanford I think was also interested um, in at least exploring the idea of being able to communicate with her um, with her son and much has been made out of that interest and um, what people forget is that it, it was a little odd even at the time but it was much more accepted than it is today and that the kind of intense feeling of loss was something that that people experienced and dealt with in a much different way than that kind of of loss um, might be
1: today. After I spoke with Maggie, I spent some time in the archives and I came across some interesting newspaper articles published around the turn of the century. In one, a typical seance was described. Door locked. Key secured. The sensitive, or medium, was first searched, and enveloped in a bag which was tied tightly and sealed. Lights were extinguished, and three objects immediately fell with a great deal of noise on the floor. Then there was a rattling resembling the chink of small metals, and the control handed me what he described as valuable ancient coins brought from Egypt. His exact words were, dead men's money from Egypt, very old, very scarce there were seven coins. Strangely enough, when I went to visit Maggie Kimball, she pulled out a box of coins.
2: So this envelope actually includes a number of different items, coins, um, and what looked like, this looks like a small maybe lead scarab. These are actually a lot more interesting than the rocks, which just look like rocks. A lot of the objects tended to have some kind of relationship to the ancient world. So there's papyrus in the collection, these Arabic coins might be considered to be certainly from a much earlier era. It's almost as though it was some way of of asserting that these objects came from a much different time than these people were living in when they were participating in the seance.
1: In the course of his lifetime, Thomas Welton donated more than $750,000 to the university. This was a substantial endowment in those days. And in his will, Thomas Welton specified that the fund should be used for, quote, learning and general knowledge in connection with psychical or psychological study or research. I was curious about how those funds are used now and I wrote to the dean of the psychology department and the reference the dean sent me in reply said that the lawyers interpreted the term psychological research to mean the general study of psychology. So Thomas Welton's endowment was then incorporated into a larger fund which provided most of the department's budgets in the following decades. Often, the distribution of funding shows us what is and what is not acceptable to study, and the fate of Thomas Welton's endowment reflects, perhaps, how the academic climate has changed in the past hundred years. I began to wonder if the Thomas Weltons of the world had entirely disappeared, and it turns out that the Thomas Weltons of the world have largely disappeared, at least from the Academy, except for a few rare exceptions. When I mentioned this interest of mine to a professor here at Stanford, he pointed me to Princeton, specifically to the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Laboratories. In January of 2008, I flew to Princeton to interview Barbara Dunn and Robert John, the founders of the pair laboratories. PEAR started its research in June of 1979 when one of John's students set up a random number generating machine. I'll let Brenda explain.
3: Bob got involved in this program through supervising an undergraduate independent project in engineering Mm -hmm. that uh, involved the design and construction of a uh, random number generator and carrying out some experiments to see if a human consciousness could affect its outcome. I got involved in the field when I was a grad student at the University of Chicago, and I was looking at a phenomenon we called remote perception, where people attempted to describe remote geographical scenes that they had no sensory access uh, to And uh, those two components, the human machine, REG, or random event generator experiments, and the remote perception really became the two main uh, empirical um, bases uh, of the pair laboratory over the years.
1: So their small laboratory was carved out of a storage area in the basement of the engineering complex at Princeton, and Robert John was then the dean of the engineering school and worked in the field of advanced aerospace propulsion, rocket science. The aim of their research was to study the interaction of human consciousness with various types of random physical systems and processes. And their research questions were, what is the role of consciousness in the physical world? And can we do science on this troublesome topic? So, what does one of the pair experiments look like? The machine that PEAR used most often was a random number generator. This machine is essentially an automatic coin flipper. It's a little box with a noise diode inside, which produces a broad spectrum of white noise, and transforms that noise into a series of random numbers. Its output is random, so it will produce a range of results, but they should average out to be 100. When a person comes into the lab, they're sat in front of this machine. And before the experiment begins, the operator is given a pre-stated intention to keep in mind. The operator focuses on trying to shift the average of the output to the positive side or to the negative side. And the operator's intention is pre-recorded, and all other variables are held constant. Only the operator's intention is changed in each trial. And during a trial, the machine generates 50 random numbers, And after many trials, theory would predict that the average of those numbers would be really close to 100. But, when an operator sat in front of the machine thinking high, 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 or low, 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 the machine began to produce results that were a little bit different from what theory would predict.
3: What was going on was that the random process that was being uh, interacted with was somehow having its probabilities altered ever so slightly. Uh, So a process that ordinarily should have produced, and in calibration did produce, a 50-50 chance of a head or a tail, was now producing, coming out with results over many, many uh, events, many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of events that had an inherent probability of, say, 0.503 or 0.497, depending on the intention of the operator to go higher or lower.
1: These deviations from chance are not terribly impressive, In fact, they're minute, they're like the residue of coffee grounds in the bottom of your cup, or or less. So then you might ask, if they're so small, then why are they significant? And the point here is a matter of statistics. The chance that this small residue of strange results would be visible over a course of 1,000 or 10,000 trials is very small. Statistical significance is measured not only based on the size of an effect, but also based on how many trials and replications and repetitions have been used to measure that effect. And this is where pairs research becomes interesting, because the probability that the trends in their data would have happened just by the random functioning of chance are less than one in one million. So when we look at these tiny deviations over many, many repetitions, we can be fairly sure that we're not seeing a deviation due to chance, but that it is somehow correlated with the operator's intention. And if pairs results are valid, they do not fit within our current theoretical model of physics. If what they have observed is true, then we need to find a theory that integrates that into our understanding of how things work. When John and Dune came out with their results, you can imagine how they were received by their peers. John spoke a little bit about this in our interview.
4: I had naively presumed that if a scholar of some credentials and pedigree uh, set up a conservative and astute program of academic research, published the results openly, uh, and involved other members of the community and access to the work that it would be uh, received more or less like other academic enterprises where that has not been the case it has proven to be an anathema to uh, a lot of people whom I would have thought uh, would know better and I don't have a better explanation for that other than that there is some uh, some fear there whether it's a fear of being associated with a suspect topic in any way or whether it's a fear about what our work does to the reputation of the institution or whether it's a, uh, a fear of the personal implications Uh, You can take your pick, but uh, there is a fear.
1: I wanted to talk to somebody else about this. Somebody who was familiar with the social aspects of science and academic life in general. So I went to a professor in philosophy, Helen Longino. She knows a lot about the social side of what goes on in the scientific community. And this is what she said.
5: I think that in any intellectual community, not just a scientific community, but in any intellectual community, there's going to be a sense of what counts as a genuine question within that community. And that's based on the available tools for inquiry uh, in that community. It's based on tradition history uh, how a field has developed over time so there will it's not surprising that when new ideas or ideas that seem not to work within the existing framework are introduced that there's resistance to that and it depends on you know the character of of the ideas and a lot of the time and the relation of those ideas to the extant framework what these people are reporting about their colleagues feeling worried about being associated with them, I think wouldn't necessarily be unique to science. That is, you know, somebody in philosophy who is doing something that was perceived to be beyond the pale might engender the same kind of uh, response. And in fact, really, you know, feminist work in a lot of disciplines has early on, not so much these days, but early on provoked uh, a similar kind of response on the part of academics who were really afraid to be seen to be supportive of feminist ideas um, because they felt they would be perceived as less than rigorous. Um, That was based, I think, a large part on a misunderstanding of what feminists were advocating. And maybe a willful misunderstanding, but so so this certainly does uh, does happen. And I think the question to be asked uh, when these kind of social phenomena are going on, the question to be asked from an external perspective is well, what's 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 actually going on here? Is the uh, resistance a resistance of fear, or do people feel that uh, somehow, their social position is being threatened or is there some genuine intellectual reason for not embracing the new idea so i think that's really what as as philosophers and historians thinking about this we want among the that's among the things we want to think about it's also just from a point of view of social history interesting to see what happens
1: There was another foreboding challenge that Pair faced in their work. They were finding anomalies, which, by definition, didn't fit into our current theoretical framework of science. They had to try to find a theory to fit their observations, and constructing a theory is more difficult than it may sound. I asked them about some of their current theoretical models.
4: The overarching thing we've just called science of the subjective How does one do a science where the principal correlates are subjective in character? But within that framework, we've made a number of uh, attempts. first shot at it was to take traditional quantum mechanics, uh, as a la Bohr and Schrodinger and Heisenberg and those cats, and see whether that couldn't reasonably be regarded as a metaphorical base for a representation of the functioning of consciousness Uh, and the answer is we think it can and we wrote a couple of hefty papers called on the quantum mechanics of consciousness but what one finds coming out at the end of all the mathematical huffing and puffing is Uh, consciousness atoms, consciousness molecules, consciousness uh, materials, consciousness principles uh, Allah uncertainty, indistinguishability, complementarity, all the good stuff that previously had been uh, been regarded as as totally uh, mechanistic in nature. You can go a long way with a quantum mechanics of consciousness. So that was, that was number one. The second attempt we called M5. Uh, it's called a modular model of mind matter manifestations. Uh, you got to read that. I can't summarize it in in 20 words or less. But the essential ingredients are an invocation of the unconscious mind in the process, and an invocation of the subphysical or intangible uh... physical concepts in the model just as uh, our conscious minds if you will float on top of a an unconscious reservoir of processing so the usual physics 101 models of matter and energy and mechanics and whatnot float on top of substrates of much less tangible physical conceptualization. The simplest forms of course are the waves and the uh, and the electromagnetic uh, propagation but going right on down that that staircase to uh, string theory, uh, chaos theory, uh, the whole nine yards of really intangible stuff on which the other uh, tangible physical ramifications prevail. So what's, what do you gain by this? Well, the the hypothesis here is that when you get way down into the unconscious on the one side of the house and way down into the sub-physical on the other side of the house, they know how to talk to each other. That the unconscious mind does know how to manipulate the un, the intangible physical world and vice versa. It's a two-way street, you see. And so now we can, if not explain, at least associate things like mind-matter interactions uh, with a process that starts in the conscious mind by an intention, uh, by a certain conceptual base, dumps it into the unconscious mind where it diffuses across into the subtangible, manipulates that, and then the tangible physical world begins to recognize what's going on and expresses it. There, it can work the other way, of course. Uh, we can get information uh, in by so-called anomalous means by going the other way through that, that tunnel.
1: When I met with Helen Longino, I asked her about what happens when a body of evidence doesn't fit within a theoretical framework. And I also asked her how theories are made, and she had a good historical example of just such a case.
5: Sometimes it tries to modify theory. And I think here, for example, of the experiments of Michelson and Morley in the late 19th century, where they were trying to measure uh, the speed of light and the speed of light through the ether. And they cr- constructed an experiment with what was called an interferometer. Uh, and they were going to measure the light fringes uh, on this interferometer. And the idea was that when the instrument was in a direction that was orthogonal to the, the, what I call the, the ether wind, light would be slowed down Passage of light would be slowed down, whereas when it was um, uh, going in the same directional same direction, the passage of light would be seen via the interferometer to be faster. They found no difference. The interferometer bands just showed absolutely no difference, no matter in what direction the interferometer was uh, was going. Which, given that most physicists thought that, in fact, there was this this ether posed a real problem. Well, one solution was to think, well, when when something was moving as fast as light moves in a direction against uh, the ether, it contracts. This was called the Lorentz contraction so that was that was a way of modifying the the theory to accommodate these anomalous observations. Now, when Einstein came along with relativity theory, Einstein said, basically he said, the speed of light is a constant, and there was no need for the uh, ether hypothesis. So it just went out the, went out the window. And it wasn't, uh, Einstein didn't come up with relativity theory to accommodate these anomalous data. He came up with it for theoretical reasons, but as a consequence, those data that were anomalous from a Newtonian perspective, became the expected outcome of the experiment. There are two, you might say, two routes that the community can take when anomalous data uh, are uh, discovered like this. One is to try to modify the theory and another is to try to discount the data. Uh, Mickelson and Morley were highly respected scientists and you know they they were very careful in what they did and so it was very difficult to discount their work and Anybody else who'd used the interferometer would have gotten the same results.
1: So far, I'd uncovered that there are a number of social and theoretical factors that come into play in the making of science. But on a very practical level, I wanted to know how we can judge a valid experiment from a potentially invalid one. What are the markers of good science? I asked Longino this question. I would look for precision.
5: Um, I would look for uh, specifications by which measurements are made. I would look for clarity of concepts. Um, I would look for real controls um, in the experiment. I would look for the kinds of statistical methods that are being used to analyze uh, the data. I would look for things like the, the, the quantity of um, uh, experiments that have been produced, the number of, of subjects, um, you know, in part it depends on what exactly is being claimed, but uh, those are some of the things I would, I would look for. And I would, I would really look for, for real specificity and, uh, in, in describing the actual observational and experimental phenomena that are being proposed as requiring some new framework.
1: When I was doing all of this hunting around, I went to one of my professors in the statistics department, Paul Switzer, and he gave me a few books by professional skeptics. Here's a list of what the skeptics call the downfalls of the psychic trade. 1. The experiments are not repeatable. 2. There is the possibility of fraud. 3. Improper mathematical methods are used. 4. ESP is logically impossible. 5. The evidence has been misinterpreted. 6. ESP's existence has no relevance to organized science. And 7. The experimental designs are inadequate. And I realized that while some of these objections have to do with method, A lot of them are not logical criticisms, but emotional charges or value judgments. And programs like PEAR often receive this sort of criticism, even when their studies use methods borrowed from experimental psychology. So I started wondering, what if PEAR met the skeptics' methodological conditions, and they still weren't permitted into the halls of science? I began looking for somebody else who was trained in rigorous scientific research, and who was also studying the paranormal. I found just the right person. Stay with us. When I was in the midst of this project, I read an article in the San Francisco Examiner that featured an interview with Dean Radin. Dean has a background in electrical engineering. He started his career at Bell Labs and then later worked for several years at the Stanford Research Institute studying psychic phenomena. I thought maybe he could help me take the next step. I contacted Dean and recently had the chance to visit him at his current headquarters at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California.
0: In the lab here, we have... This is primarily used for psychophysiological studies. You can see over here is one of our, um, one of our boxes that we use for that sort of thing. Um, this is designed mostly to measure autonomic measures, but also you can measure central nervous system. Things like uh, the, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic branch of the nervous system, uh, autonomic so called because it's operating automatically, like the thing that's making your heart beat and breathing and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, in contrast to the central nervous system, which is what your what your brain is doing. So we use that because if we're doing an experiment, for example, in the unconscious uh, equivalent of telepathy, if two people feel so deeply connected that um, that they feel each other's emotions and they somehow know when the other person's gonna call and so on, it suggests that in some way they're they're connected. Even though they appear to be separate, they're connected or they're together somehow. So we're standing in front of uh, a Faraday cage, or an sh- electromagnetically shielded room, which is 2,000 pounds of steel, and it's, it's solid steel. So when the door to this room is closed, I wonder if you can pick up the sound of this when it's closing. Let's see. It probably just makes a thunk, that, that thunk, and then gets pulled in. So, that squeaky noise was actually sucking the door in to make an electrical seal. And now, to get it open, I have to really, really against it. There we go. Uh, the reason we, we go to such extents here is because this is part of an experiment where two people are isolated, and we want to see whether or not they're able to, quote, communicate with each other, even though they're isolated. And so, one of the two people has to be in a condition where no ordinary form of signaling, electromagnetic or otherwise, can, can get to them. So the whole chamber is actually sitting on a, on a mat, a vinyl mat on the bottom, which is a vibration isolation as well. And then we're sitting, uh, the whole floor is concrete. So once you're in that chamber uh, from there to the room about 20 meters away, we've tested to see what kind of audio leakage there is. And basically it's way below even our ability to unconsciously pick it up.
1: So there's no communication from this chamber with the outside world.
0: Right. But nevertheless, the idea is to see uh, if the people were connected in, by some means which is not electromagnetic and not vibration, not sound, not anything else, how would we detect that? So the way we do it is if you come in here, you know, in, inside the chamber, uh, typically uh, we ask the person in here to simply relax. We'd have a, re- a reclining chair in here. We wire them up to, to look at their heartbeat, their skin conductance, their brain waves, a bunch of things. And simply ask them to relax and to keep their partner in mind. So they know the partner's going to be somewhere else. They don't know where, but somewhere. They don't even know what the partner's doing, but to just keep them in mind continually. And what we have in here then is a closed-circuit TV camera so that it, the TV will get the, picture, the the face of the person in here and then take it outside through fiber optics and route it to the other room. So now the person who is in the room, which, which we would call the sender, although they're sort of sending their intention, uh, their job is to mostly sit in front of a blank TV monitor, and every so often the monitor will suddenly wake up and show the face of their partner who's in the room we're currently in. And when that happens to mentally try to connect, even though both people are keeping each other in mind all the time, when the, the image pops up, it's their signal to mentally try to connect as much as they can. And so this happens randomly 36 times over the course of a half an hour. And nobody knows when these periods are going to be. Uh, Even the experimenter doesn't know. Also, the, the receiving person inside the box, their physiology is continually recorded, and the same in the sender. We have their physiology recorded continually as well. So the hypothesis of this would be that if the two people are connected in some way, even though we don't see how the connection is done, that when the person who is the sender is given a startle which is the, the the picture suddenly popping up, that and at the same time they're using that startle to provide some energy to try to mentally connect with the person over here. We know that their body is going to go through a large uh, sympathetic arousal, and we we see that in their body. But then the, the the anomalous question is what's happening to the body of the person who is in here? If they respond at about the same time and showing similar kinds of physiological arousal at the same time that their partner is, is actually trying to send something to them mentally, then it provides evidence that, at least at a physiological level, that they're connected somehow. So, so that's the kind of experiment that we've done many, many times. The, the null hypothesis would say that the person in the shielded room here, since they don't know what anybody is doing outside and they don't know when or anything else, there shouldn't be any systematic correlation between them and the outside world. But the fact is that there are correlations between.
1: And what are your correlations, like what are your findings like thus far?
0: Well the last experiment we did uh, simultaneously measured skin conductance, uh, fingertip blood volume, heart rate, respiration, and one channel of EEG. So five measures continually in both people. In all five measures we see that there are correlations, unexpected correlations, uh, by chance anyway, appearing in the receiving person's body in correspondence with the sending person. The strongest correlation, one that's easiest to see is in skin conductance. And so we tend to use skin conductance a lot because it's a very easy measure to take. Uh, it's, it's, all of these are non-invasive, but it's easy to, to put on, it's easy to take off and all that. And it, it gives a very nice and sensitive measure of what's going on in the sympathetic nervous system.
1: Keeping in mind what I'd read of the skeptics, I asked Dean how strong the correlations were, and I also asked whether he had enough data to verify the data's statistical significance.
0: Well, in terms of the magnitude of the correlation, it's pretty small. But because we have a fair amount of data, we have lots of couples involved in this and take a lot of data in the sessions, statistically it's clear that something is going on. In, in these experiments, it's not that unusual to get probabilities of less than .001. All of these experiments suggest uh, that whether it's a telepathy experiment or th- this is called D-MILS, the, the acronym means Distant Mental Interactions with Living Systems. Uh, we also do clairvoyance experiments, precognition experiments. Mm-hmm. All of them suggest that our sense of being isolated and separate in both space and time is an illusion and that we actually are connected through space and time in ways that we're only just beginning to understand, but that we we have a fair amount of data suggesting that that is true.
1: Dean is a rare breed, like the professors at Princeton. He's a professional scientist who developed an interest in the paranormal later in his career. And unlike a lot of sort of woo-woo mystics out there, he was coming at these problems with a very strict, empirical point of view. And I asked Dean about his time at the Stanford Research Institute, where he was part of a team conducting research about psychic phenomena. This research was funded by various intelligence agencies of the U.S. government.
0: The amazing thing about working at SRI was, I felt a little bit like I was transplanted from a Bell Labs environment into basically the same kind of technical and scientific environment, except that people were entertaining things which from the outside were considered to be impossible or worse. And it, I had enough trouble in previous five years in reconciling my training against the possibility that psychic stuff was real uh, and i wasn 't working with with highly trained people. I was working with myself and people in the laboratory but so one big difference at sRI was uh, they had the opportunity to work with and find specifically go out and find people who were extremely good natural psychics, uh, mostly in the realm of remote viewing or clairvoyance and you don't need to, to witness uh, really good remote viewings happen very often before you, you understand why the, this idea that you, we don't need proof-oriented research anymore. We really don't. With the question now is, how does it work? How do we make it better? Uh, from the reason it's being funded by the government, or was funded by the government, is that it seemed to be useful for intelligence purposes. And that's what most of the focus was on.
1: One of the things that kept coming up in these interviews was the potential case of fraud. Maybe the people who claim to have evidence of ESP are simply lying. The possibility was mentioned at Princeton, with Professors Longino and Switzer, and again with Dean Radin. I asked Professor Longino how to prevent against fraud, and this is what she said. You know, scientists
5: think they're trying to get at what's real. Um, and..." If something is, the idea is that if, if we're talking about a genuine phenomenon, then it's going to be manifest uh, whenever uh, a similar, uh, the same setup, if it's manifest in one setup, then it's going to manifest in the same setup when that setup is
1: someplace else. The best way to prevent against fraud in science is to independently replicate an experiment's results. I asked Steen Raiden what he does when it comes down to the question of fraud, and this is what he said.
0: You do the same as you do anywhere in science. You have to rely on independent replication because you have to rely on the the integrity of the people making the claim, and you don't you basically you don't know. You never know. I mean there are people publishing articles in Nature and Science, which are found out to be false after a while. And the only way that you eventually find out is by what other people come up with. It's replication that does it. That's the self-policing. So, in the case of uh, the Princeton work, had anybody else replicated a similar kind of experiment, or even exactly the same experiment, independently? And the answer is yes, both before the program started and after. So, in context, of a larger body of people doing similar experiments, the fraud hypothesis doesn't wash. In fact, their results aren't bigger or even even more repeatable than what other people have reported. They fit very nicely within the larger body of data. And if you can show that a result that somebody is reporting is not an outlier among the rest of the data, well, if it's fraud, it was a pretty stupid fraud because it didn't make it any better than anybody else. And now you have to go to uh, a sense of group fraud or, co- or collusion among lots of people. And once you get into that kind of paranoid state, you basically, might as well just give up because it means that the, the a sense of open-mindedness is no longer there.
1: Another key question in this discussion is about the nature of consciousness. I thought this might be a relatively simple question to answer. We're all conscious. It seems like we'd agree on what that means. But it turned out to be a lot like that original question about gravity. Nobody knows what consciousness is. There are a lot of theories out there about what consciousness is, but none of them have yet to be verified. This is what Longino says.
5: In psychology... Now, uh, there is certainly a good deal of research on consciousness. Now, this is on human consciousness, but we can probably learn a lot more about consciousness just from studying ourselves, both in the psychological context and also in what's called neuropsychology, trying to understand the relation between psychological phenomena and uh, neurological phenomena. I think once we understand more of that, we'll actually have more of a handle on what the concept of consciousness actually is. I think part of the problem with a lot of uh, this research is that the, the idea of consciousness that's employed is in a way almost metaphorical. So it's something like my consciousness, but if I don't really have a good handle on what that is, then how can I sort of be talking, attributing consciousness to something that I have no way of actually accessing.
1: Dean Radin also had an interesting idea about what consciousness is and how it fits into a quantum model of the universe.
0: I don't know. Nobody knows. I kind of I flip-flop on this issue. I I understand the, the power of the neuroscience explanations. We're getting really good at explaining the circuitry of the brain. And it's easy to become seduced by the power of these explanations into thinking that the brain is a kind of computer. And if it's a kind of computer, as far as we know, computers don't have ESP. So, game's over. So there has to be some other explanation. you can come up with, you know, with a whole bunch of explanations, none of which I think have any merit, but nevertheless, if, if you really need those explanations, you can latch onto it and assume that that's true. But the reason why I, I, uh, I reject the computer metaphor or it's not that I, actually it's not true. I don't reject the computer metaphor. I reject the idea that we know what material is like. We know that we know the nature of physical systems to such a degree that we know what its actual boundaries are, and there I think we don't know anything. We're, we're, we're as Newton said, I think, that we're, we're little, little boys playing with stones on the edge of the, of the ocean. We've just begun to understand a little bit about the nature of the medium in which we live, and the brain is no different. So, if it turns out that the, uh, the brain as a quantum object with enough recursion built into the object is sufficient to give rise to what we, th- we think of as awareness, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. It it becomes kind of a reductionistic, materialistic approach to understanding consciousness, which is the prevailing idea in neuroscience. But it also says that whatever that machine is, it also has some other peculiar properties. And some of the other peculiar properties are that we, we feel particulate most of the time, but maybe we have a wave-like character as well. And maybe it only comes every so often because you need to be in a weird sort of coherent brain state for this to exist. But when it does exist, we have access to information all over the place.
1: started this project, I didn't quite realize what I was getting myself into. After I talked with Dean Radin, I had more questions than answers. For example, what kind of questions should science be asking? Does the investigation of psychic phenomena fall within the realm of science? Where do we set the bar for truth, and how can we create a climate where these kind of questions can be debated? After talking with so many scientists, I realized I had to go back to the philosopher to look at this issue from a broader perspective. I asked Professor Longino what she thought about research programs on the margins of science.
5: One quote, and this is from Shakespeare, that often comes to mind when I think about these things is um, Hamlet is speaking to Horatio and he says, There are more things under heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophies. So I think it's important not to uh, affirm with any degree of confidence that the kinds of things that they are trying to demonstrate don't exist or are impossible, but it may not be possible to use scientific means to demonstrate them. And so one has to be really careful. Um, I think, especially in the late 20th and early 21st century, the label scientific And science are uh, used to kind of grant validity. And so we would like many things to be scientific, but maybe some things just can't be demonstrated in, in that way.
1: I think that one of the reasons there are still so many unanswered questions about consciousness is that it's really hard to study consciousness. You end up with this sort of funny feedback loop where the thing that you're studying is the thing that you study with. This is why Pear has called for an expansion of science. They call it a holistic science.
4: This now emphasizes that you need the holistic science. You can't talk about mind and matter and with a firewall between them. You have to talk about a synergistic complementarity, sloshing from mental impressions, interpretations, models and whatnot on the one hand, and physical stuff on the other hand that they come from the same they come from the same the same place and don't be surprised that they seem to correlate
1: this is a really tricky topic to approach it's got sort of a taboo associated with it which prevents the paranormal from even being discussed but shouldn't science investigate everything equally Dean Radin thinks that it's to the detriment of science as a whole that certain taboo topics aren't at the center of a more lively debate.
0: You know, the, the interesting thing about the, these debates is, this should be a debate which, which is being thoroughly discussed in, in, everywhere in academia. It's an interesting idea, it's, a, it's an important thing to figure out, there's empirical data that could be brought, brought to bear, but the debate doesn't happen. And again, the only way I can think easily way of describing it is that the taboo prevents the debate, just like any taboo would. you just don't talk about it so Unfortunately, this sustains the idea among enough students who will eventually become professors who never hear anything about this debate, so they will it'll come to mind at some point someone will talk about something psychic and they'll think well pff, we we never even discussed this because it was beneath." the discussion it didn't even it doesn't even reach the level of where a debate is necessary i've met plenty of of college kids when i was going through college who felt that way especially going through a, a psychology curriculum they figured well you know people talk about this stuff but it's crazy and you don't need too many people saying that publicly for the people who are having the actual experiences including many students to know you don't talk about it because then you'll be ridiculed by the one or two people who are loud about it so one of the things I'd like to see change then is to, like any any idea within academia should be debated. And, it, and of course, in order to have a proper debate, people need to be informed about it. And that is not going to happen until somebody recognizes the emperor has no clothes.
1: Today's episode was produced by myself, I'm Bonnie Swift, and Jonah Willingans. It was engineered by Micah Craddy, and Noah Burbank created most of the music for this show. You also heard music by David Shilsom, Ambika, Jimi Hendrix, Thelonious Monk, and Frank Zappa and the Mothers. Thanks to Maggie Kimball, Robert John, Brenda Dunn, Helen Longino, and Dean Radin for their interviews. And thanks to Professor Paul Switzer for all his help in helping me understand statistics. Thanks also to Hannah Krakauer. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank Stanford Continuing Studies, the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, the Center for Teaching and Learning, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would also like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website,